All right. So, liberty. Yeah. What of it? Um, I call the side of the argument for liberty. Sorry. All right. I'll take against. But you get security. Okay. We'll call the against side security. Yeah. That's good, right? Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so if I am a dictator and I want to control a society... Why is that not good for the people? It might be good. Depends on what the dictator is going to do. That's a great way to start this conversation. Well, okay. If I am a despot who's received a ton of education and a lot of resources in my life, and the average citizen of my country has very little education and knowledge, don't I know better than my citizens what's good for them? Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Some people haven't thought through the issue of, is taxation theft? Is the government kind of like a mafia? So if you haven't thought through those, then you are vulnerable to be sucked up in the norms of society and just call what we do to confuse normal and good. So it is possible. I want to talk about the concept of liberty Assuming it's a positive thing, that liberty begets economic prosperity. Yes. Okay. You with me? Yes. Obviously, I I think a lot of the concept comes from the origins of the country, right? The American founding fathers saying, like, we want to establish a nation that has liberty and is is not under the rule of this far-off government that's imposing a tax that makes no sense that we should be paying when we don't have any representation. So we believe that we can start a new nation that empowers people and emphasizes liberty, and that nation will create prosperity for the people. Right. Do you believe that has actually happened in American history? No. Or that ha- that we've pursued liberty for the sake of prosperity? Sure, yeah. It's hard to say yes, Harry, let's take it a step back. Okay. Do you agree that the founding of America and the concepts behind the Constitution and the founding of the country were, in a sense, liberty-oriented in nature? I will say yes, because I'm often when I when I see quotes from those documents, I think if people like this and have a flag, why aren't they voting for Ron Paul? But at the same time. They got the post office. It's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> why are we socializing mail in the pursuit of liberty? Okay, so then if you would say that you believe that we started out in that direction of America being started on the concept of liberty and trying to go in that direction, where has it fallen short or where has it derailed and and why? I think the why is our covetous nature. 
I think we can easily be sold as a people to sacrifice our liberty for security, whether that be from a foreign threat or security with our finances. I think that's been the story of our republic. We sold those those things away. I don't know how it went in the past, but I definitely have observed that in my lifetime in just a short time frame where some kind of scare is used as an emotional bargaining chip almost. Like, for example, an event like 9-11 is then used to institute the Patriot Act and take away people's freedoms. But then people in those moments seeking protection and security will give up those freedoms in exchange for that feeling of security. Right. I guess you're making the point that you think this has pretty much always been the case? Yeah, it's hard for me to say always, not only because the level of my study, but I'm probably like a lot of people out there. I'm public school raised. We talked about the superheroes that are our founding fathers that didn't tell lies and chopped down cherry trees to build the White House. I think that's how, (laughs) something like that. Made arrows with those to shoot down the first American eagle. Like, you know, whatever propaganda we we were fed. That's where I started. And then the first history class I had that said we weren't the best ever was in 2003, maybe. And it was probably from a liberal standpoint to think we need to change. That was kind of the professor's agenda. And even to 9-11, right? What was the reason we were fed that they attacked us? Do you remember? I forget. They said they hate us because we're free. Like there's somebody in the Middle East and they're being told about this, this guy there's this guy I've met. His name is Tom. He lives in Philadelphia and he went to go get a burger and he had a choice, many choices. And this will not stand like, <laughs> you, you, like whatever. It's so nonsensical. So, so, <laughs> so, this makes me think of the scene from Big Lebowski where it's showing George Bush talking about the Gulf War. Okay. And he's saying, this aggression will not stand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's a big mess there. But yeah, just in the micro cases that we've seen in our lifetime, yeah, it's just not thought of and it's so easily given into this idea that we get this thing. Isn't that what we're... And not even like this... It would be a different story if people would have compelling arguments as to why we should sacrifice liberty. But liberty doesn't even even come into the conversation. It's just a conversation of which security is better. And I assume that's happened quite a bit. Tell me how you... how you think of it in terms of a spectrum of authoritarianism and liberty. Do you see it as we've been moving from one direction to another or the opposite direction to another? Or has it oscillated over time, especially with respect to America? So part of that, I think part of my answer is two ways I can think of answering that question. One is to kind of look at things like the income tax. It was initially passed to be a temporary tax on the richest of the rich it will never be more than like 5% and it's going to go away. And we, we need to mend the constitution to do it. So that's what we're going to do. And now fast forward, the income tax, what tops out at, is it in the 30s now? 35? 39.6. 39.6%. And it's applied to everybody. And the way people accept that is, well, but you know, there's deductions. We're not even in the same ballpark. So because of the income tax example, I wonder if... The whole thing is a big ruse. I'm just wondering if people in government and who pursue government are just figuring out different ways to double speak what's really happening to fit their constituents. So if it was America, 
say freedom as much as possible because we've been told that that's our history. If it's the Soviet Union, you know, they talk about power more because that's kind of ingrained in, in their culture. But which one of us is, was the more socialistic country? Which one of us was pursuing government? We were in a space race where you're we both taking our citizens' money on a government program. And, you know, it's different spectrums and different levels of power and authority were taken. But it makes me question going back because people think we're a free country now. Yeah. The way I view it is that there was a very liberty-oriented start to the country and that America was this rebel colony that was rebelling against the British monarchy. You have them starting out the country here and saying, okay, we want freedom and we want to give all our citizens just freedom to pursue their own lives. Then by the nature of governments, you have this power creep. It's almost like governmental inflation over time Yeah, that just wants to grow a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and it's just always addicted to that power creep. Power is very addictive, so whoever can have it wants just a little bit more, a little bit more, as long as they can keep growing it. That's kind of the way I view it. So it, I see it as kind of a, a trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems, it seems that way from a lot of different angles when you look back. You mean, have you seen that quote from George Washington about the Second Amendment? that's been going around the internet. The spoiler is it's not about hunting deers. Oh, no. It says, A free people ought not only be armed and disciplined, but they should have sufficient arms and ammunition to maintain a status of independence from any who might attempt to abuse them, which would include their own government. So, yeah, what a radical. Nobody would have elected that guy. I mean, he's a nut. This was literally what Pierce Morgan have you seen his interview with Ben Shapiro? No, no. It's pretty good because his agenda, and he gets satisfied in that interview, Pierce Morgan, the interviewer, when he gets Ben Shapiro to admit that the reason he believes in the Second Amendment is to oppose the potential of the government turning tyrannical. And he asks him, he's like, oh, do you expect this to happen anytime soon? And Shapiro responded like, no, but it is possible, him being a Jewish person and his grandparents having been in the Holocaust. It's like, it's not, it's not out of the last 100 years that this has happened. And not just, you know, that weird country in the remote part of the world that, of course, something crazy happened there. No, Germany. It happened in Germany, where people would have needed this liberty to protect themselves at the cost of security, because then all your neighbors are armed. So George Washington would have been on the side of Ben Shapiro and seen as a nut. So that is encouraging to what you're saying. There's a lot of stuff that does point to us having some seemingly good roots yeah and to me it's just an example of like how far we've gone in a different direction and not really realized it i think as a society we seem to forget history forget where we've come from mm -hmm. i don't know what's been going around around with that meme but if people hear that like if people didn't know george washington said that if someone heard that quote today half of people would be like, lock that guy up or something like that. You know what I mean? All right. So should we post this quote and put Donald Trump and see what happens? You know, <laughs> I have heard that he's used verbatim quotes from Obama uh -huh. and would get blasted for them. And Jimmy Kimmel does that all the time. He'll take opposing positions and, you know, find people that he thinks would support Hillary like in the last election and, and read them Donald Trump's 
tax plan and say, what do you think about this? Hillary Clinton's new tax plan. And they're like, oh, I really like it. I, I you know, all these things. And, and, uh, and people just kind of go into this pre-recorded thought process, which is fair. It's like if, if your life is busy and you've got kids and you've got problems, it's like, I don't want to investigate to make a vote where I live in California. Democrat, that's the answer. Who cares? I'm moving on with my life. But just how these people are completely uninformed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So much that they could, they don't know the difference between their can- two candidates. Yeah. But to me, the whole subject of government and policies and things like that, you can't look at government without looking at history. And that's where history just becomes so valuable because any kind of feelings you might have on a today basis have to be benchmarked against what has happened historically in a bunch of different settings and scenarios. So for example, if you're going to talk about whether you should allow people to have guns in society, if you only look at the here and now today basis, the here and now today would say, there was a school shooting yesterday. Yeah. I don't want a school shooting. So yeah, let's not have guns. But if you look at any measure of history, people not having guns has been one of the worst causes of genocide. Yeah. So there's the time frame. And then there's also just the depth of the topic. Stefan Molyneux, he's got a podcast and he, he says, there is no anti-gun position. It's a choice between whether or not you think the citizens should have guns or only the government. In fact, if you're pro-gun control, you're very pro-gun. You're just pro-government having gun. That's only one thought process into it. It's like, guns are legal, then who has guns? Right. Nobody? Yeah, the funny part about it is when you get politicians who will talk the talk, and you know they don't actually mean it in that sense, that definitely is doublespeak. They'll say, we need to get rid of guns. They would never get rid of their security, you know, that's following oh, yeah. them around. Yeah. They just wouldn't do that. So that's definitely a form of doublespeak in that sense. Or it's like, you need to do this, but I don't need to do this. Yeah. Which I think is part of how a lot of people see rules in general, is they live in a paradigm where we should have rules as a face chill out. Why are you debating this? We're all going to break rules, including this one. It's just, you know, we just have it there because it's a good thing to have. That is a culture that exists within the U.S. So when, when people have this debate of liberty versus security, it's like, why not have both? You know, why not just make a law for the sake of making a law and then do whatever you want? Like Australia took up, they had a gun confiscation, but they didn't finish that mission. That's kind of weird. Like they passed a law to say, we're going to take all the guns. But there's plenty of people there who own guns that aren't in prison. I mean, they're now technically felons. But so I wonder how you pull that element of people's political thinking into it is, do you see that spectrum as well? Like, we might have a conversation to say, what are the best rules to be put in place in society? Because when these rules are in place, we have to follow them. And if people don't follow them, we're sending the police with guns to make them comply or they might die. We're going to put them in a cage for not following this rule. That's what a rule means. That's what a law means. So when you're saying there should be a law against buying too much soda, I think you're a monster. You'd kill somebody if they didn't obey you in their soda habits, but they're not thinking about laws that way. They're thinking of it in a completely different paradigm to say, if there's not a law against this in our society, that's a shame to our society because not having a law means we support it. Like when Obama would say, that's not who we are. 
when he used to say, he, he would just say like, people have guns and they're, they're criminals. That's not who we are. And I think he was appealing to that people group who said, if, if we don't make drugs illegal, that means I want my kid to use heroin. Yeah, we don't want that. Like, I don't want that. So I'm not sure how to, how to classify that thinking, but I think it comes into play as you're debating these issues. If one person's coming from the save face shame culture, maybe, and the other one's coming from more of a principled liberty-based culture, you could just talk over because they could be hearing you're a monster. But really, you're just saying laws matter. That leads to death. You've got a bad law. Someone's going to die for a bad reason. So we better be real careful. Yeah, I think most people would agree they want some kind of laws or rules in society. It's just a natural tendency of people to want it to apply to everyone else and not them when it's inconvenient. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't work in reality, but in your mind, you have this tendency to want to think like, okay, we'll have this law in place. Everyone else should abide by it. I'll abide by it if it's convenient, but if not, then like I'll do what I want to do. Right. That's just a matter of self-centeredness of thinking like I want society to do the things I want it to do I'll do that too as long as it works for me but if it doesn't then I want to be able to do my own thing in a certain sense I'm very much pro-liberty but at the same time it is beneficial for society for people to concede bits of freedom to each other Okay, let's shrink it down again. So if we're not talking on the societal level, but we're talking on a family level. Okay. As much as I think hyperbolic language is useful in getting a point across, to say that like having any law in place is saying the threat of gunpoint that we will throw you in jail if you don't abide by this soda tax or whatever, if you take that on a family level, is a parent in guiding and disciplining their child which I believe they should be doing. Yeah. If the child is disobedient, then are you going to say that in getting the child to do what the parents think the child should be doing, are they imposing tyrannical threat of death on them to get them to perform the behavior that is necessary or desired? It is interesting because maybe that difference is what caused a lot of confusion in the sense that if you look at the government as your family, you think of it in the context of, well, they're not going to put me in jail or come make me comply with guns, the threat of violence, because that's not how family works. Neither does back in the day when you might have belonged to either a church organization, which you would submit some of your liberties to, some other group, tribe that you run with, that they have rules. And if you don't comply with them, then you get booted from that tribe. And the parallel there would be those groups made restrictions on your liberty for your sake. But you could always bounce from them. It might be a huge cost, but they took away those those liberties because it was in some parts beneficial. So as those maybe categories went away and we replaced our freedom to associate with who we want to with everybody's part of this big government state, we might have confused those two and thinking, well, I mean, when I go to church, they look after me and they make rules. Shouldn't get drunk. It's not good for you. Well, why don't we abolish alcohol as a nation? What could possibly go wrong? And the initial response is because your church is not the government. Your church is not going to enforce those rules with force. And your church cutting alcohol from its doctrine won't create the mob in Chicago and all these deaths. 
they're different things. So if you're going to make the transition, was that kind of what you were thinking? Is is if family can can do these things, and why not the government? The huge difference is, is the level of force behind it. I think it actually does go back to the point that you just made that depends on how people view it. Because I think a lot of people that are pro-government kind of view government as that parent figure. Yeah, yeah. And people that are anti-government view it as this unwelcome dictator. Yeah. Which is, I think, the big difference. That's really what is just like clicking with me right now. Because if you think down to the family level, if a child views their parents as loving providers who want to help grow them and support them and protect them, then they trust in them and they want to defer to them and yield to them. But if they view their parents as these oppressive dictators, then they want to be out and free from them. So I think a lot of it has to do with how we view the government and what role the government ends up playing in society. So if the government ends up playing a very authoritative, dictatorial role, then it would be natural for people to want out from under that. But if a government was playing a very parenting, providing role, then people would likely want to be coddled by that. And I think and that's the direction that we've been going as a society. The more entitlements we have, the more people feel like the government is my parent and it provides for me. So like, I don't want to have to provide for myself. I want my parent to provide for me. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of where things have been coming from and people viewing the government as this parent figure that's providing for them. And in that sense, people are willing to give up that liberty for that. So bringing it back to the original topic, do you believe that liberty yields economic prosperity? Yeah, so my answer is twofold. One part is it doesn't matter. It's right, so we should pursue that even if it's not prosperous. And my second answer is, yeah, I'm convinced that, that it provides the most, the most, what do you call it? Economic prosperity. Over time, though. Yeah? Over okay. time. Why do you think that is the case? Or how does that transpire because of liberty? I think it's the invisible hand of the free market. It is quite an amazing thing to think about. Uh, people often complain, oh, the rich get richer. Some do. Depends on how they steward their richness. And don't just look at it now. Don't think of the rich getting richer as an evil thing because you see one irresponsible rich kid making one good business deal. The free market is a constant machine of people making decisions with their money, how they're going to spend their money in uh, both parties' mutual best interest at that time. But over time, when people make bad investments, they lose that power to dictate which direction the economy goes. Like Zuckerberg has power, Facebook CEO. He's got a lot of wealth. People see him now as this big evil player in, in the game. But he only has that power because he stewarded time, talents, and, and money greatly up to this point. And when he stops doing that, some people think he already is, is not being a good steward of his power. If that's the case, people will stop using his app and he will lose that power. And he will no longer have that sort of influence over the life that he has now. I think that's a really good point. I would definitely agree with that invisible hand of the market 
doing exactly what you're saying. I heard it mentioned about wealth oscillating between generations because you can have that someone who has nothing finally has a generation of somebody has the motivation to want to escape and break through. Yeah. And they succeed and, and do well and accumulate wealth. And then they want to provide for their children because they didn't have it. And then they spoil their children. And then maybe a generation later after that, the spoiled children raise even more spoiled children who squander and waste that and then move more in the impoverished direction and just start the cycle over again kind of thing. Yeah. You have examples of that. And that's that's a great thing. It's a system where the king can be dethroned, but also the new kings and the right king can be put in power. Because the, the opposite side of that is when people make bad decisions, they lose money, lose power. The other thing is we need rulers. I need somebody to lord over search engine capabilities so that I can say, hey, Google, look up this thing, and it gives me that information. So it's good that all of this power and money has been funneled into Google. Because not only do they give me this great service, but they've done it in a way that I don't have to give them any money. Like, that's a great king, and they deserve to be lord of search engines. So there's two parts of, of how the free market, and it was an exercise of liberty, leads to businesses being in control of what they should be, and individuals not being in control of what they shouldn't be. If you're bad with money, you shouldn't control money. That would make us all poor. If you're good with money, you should get more money because that's going to make everybody richer. But you can't decide that from a government standpoint. That's why I think liberty begets economic prosperity. As much as you might complain about the lack of liberty in America, if we look back at a very long time scale of history, looking at kingdoms and despots and things like that, I think America has had a lot of freedom and it would suggest either via technology that it, we just happen to be at that point in history and it just out of randomness happens to be that all things have happened here in America. But I'm inclined to believe in the framework that we have in this country enabled the breeding ground for the economic prosperity that has transpired in America and that liberty was a big function of that. So I'm inclined to believe that. Whether or not that is actually the case is very hard to prove. But like I'm saying, I, I see the dots connected and I think it very much is the case. What do you think about the answer of it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. Well, sure. I mean, on a spiritual and eternal level, okay, fine. Like it doesn't matter. But in this life, people are pursuing labor and that is part of our effort to survive and prosper. From a, a moral standpoint, I value life itself. And yeah. so I believe that part of economic prosperity promotes life itself. Yeah, that's true. You know, and survival. Because if you have resources, then you are surviving and thriving as opposed to not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So economic prosperity begetting life, in a sense, I would say then, yes, is, is a good thing. The problem, of course, is when money becomes an idol. Okay. 
if the pursuit of money and material wealth and economic prosperity becomes a god, then that is obviously a huge problem. Have you heard the expression about how to, how to define idols in your life? If you're willing to sin to get it, it's become an idol. Or if you sin when you don't get it, it's become an idol. That first one being more prevalent to this. Do we allow theft on a grand scale? Sin. Because we want to get something. Tax benefits yeah, being, the, the, being the idol. It's an interesting point because I feel like that definition really pairs well with what you were saying before about taxes and ends justifying means and, and using things to accomplish goals or desires. So you you may be doing something that you know or believe to be wrong, but you're justifying it yeah, because of the end. That would be the breakdown of any sin I think about. I'm like, oh, that's why I did that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I just want to see if you uh, have an opinion on the counterfactual. Do you think tyranny begets economic poverty? How do you define tyranny? Restricting people's liberty. Okay. Because earlier you'd asked a question if you had a dictator, right? So a dictator not being synonymous with a tyrannical dictator, right? Okay. I think it's important because people sometimes make democracy synonymous with liberty, which it's not because you can vote to steal 49 people's money if you're a group of 100. So I think the right answer is it doesn't matter because if liberty is moral, then we should do it. Yeah, it shouldn't even be within the conversation. Money isn't, isn't everything. But I also assume assume so, mainly from when I see tyrannical decisions being, this is how we're going we're gonna to pick winners and losers. This is how we're going to involve ourselves in, in free market. It normally slows things from dying that should die, like the banks, or props up things that shouldn't grow, like homeownership. But also, I can't sit here and draw up a list of all the different things that maybe tyrannical people have done or governments have done. But also, I would assume that tyrannical decisions have led to economic prosperity. I guess you could say depends to who. I mean, China's getting richer and richer and richer. But I would assume that some tyranny does lead to prosperity. But fundamentally, the way I understand economic theory, messing with the free market is messing with liberty and you're messing with the mechanisms that create wealth. So as strongly as I believe in your earlier reference to the invisible hand and the free market, I do believe it is actually possible to manipulate the economy to a benefit or a detriment. By grabbing the wrist, the invisible wrist? Yes. <laughs> now, whether or not we would have the wisdom with which to do that prudently oh. is another question. For example, some of the actions that could have been taken in 2008 as a answer to where we were at that point in time, the actions that were taken were taken so that the banks would not collapse, so that we wouldn't go into a deep depression and could continue to prosper economically. But obviously that created the moral hazard that it then incentivizes that behavior or the risky behavior that led to that situation to happen again. Right. Which is a very bad thing, in my opinion. But maybe there were other options or opportunities that the economy could have been manipulated in a non-free sense that could have helped alleviate the situation that 
would have been a net benefit to society in the sense that they would have mitigated the blow or something to that extent. But then again, it brings up the question, maybe people needed to feel the pain so that people would not do that again. It's a tricky situation. Yeah, because if you don't feel the pain, why would you change? Yeah, exactly. I was kind of thinking of that when you were talking about the force of, on like a government level. But you know, even if you think of your own body, I wouldn't consider my body tyrannical by enforcing pain on me when I do something that causes me pain. My body has a defense mechanism that's warning me that I'm doing something that's hurting myself. Yeah. And it's disincentivizing me from that behavior. <laughs> yeah. I drank not enough water yesterday, spent too much time in the sun and ate two of those holiday chocolate eggs from Walmart. I was out of commission by 5 p.m. <laughs> Today, eating much better. Strawberries, lentils, lots of water. <laughs> no chocolate eggs? No. <laughs> oh, man. No. But yeah, you're right. So that, that pain was, was a good thing. Because I guess your central principle was long-term survival of your body. That's what it's designed to do is to give you pain when you're working against its own long-term survival. Yeah. All right, let's land this plane. Okay. From where America is right now, do you expect the next 20 years to precipitate more liberty for Americans or less? Less. And I presume you would say that's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think principally and objectively it is a bad thing. So what can be done in response to that or to mitigate that from happening? You know, that's a good question because two things that come to mind. One is I would think people need to chew through these things. Think about them. Whether or not taxation is theft is a good question that somebody should, should wrestle through. Not assume that. Not assume that just because it's culturally normal, it's a good thing. I would also think that you have to review these things through the lens of a Christian worldview, you know, a changed heart. Because like we said, to be freed from your covetous heart is a miracle. And if you're free from your covetous heart, I think you can reject security for liberty. You can say, no, I'm not going to be tempted by these things. But the libertarian movement is certainly not a Christian movement. I mean, there, there's plenty of people that embrace these principles. The fun word about it is they're woke to these things. They've been red-pilled. <laughs> uh, but it, it is a good way to, to think about it in terms of like, everybody, you know, a whole group of people saw that debate with Ron Paul in it. And I don't get why people don't get this. So in one sense, I'm the wrong person to ask that question because I, I don't have the answer. But maybe the answer is I, I just don't know. Like I, I don't get why some people latch on to these principles and see the world the way I see it and the way so many other people see it. And then why other people will we'll have a conversation for like an hour. And I feel like I've made every single point and walked them mentally through all these things. And then by the end, like, so what do you think about taxation? It's like, well, I think it's fine, you know people are hungry so i have in those experiences i don't understand why we don't still have slavery like i really don't i mean why the same mindset i think to ignore and refuse to think about the parallels between taxation and theft is the same mentality that that would dehumanize other people to make them slaves and i think it's the same thing that dehumanizes unborn babies like i feel like the only hope i can i can think is that we were on this abolitionist progression and we've somehow got we somehow abolished slavery and we could in the future therefore 
abolish abortion and abolish taxation, two cultural norms that we live with because we get something out of it. We do this wrong thing, we do this evil thing, but we're all better. I'm doing air quotes. Crime has gone down since abortion has been legaled. I don't know if that's been debunked or not, but people make that argument. That's good enough. I don't think I've actually heard that. Yeah, I think it was on Freakonomics where they, they talked about the crime stats that's gone down since abortion is legal, and then they made the proposition, does that make abortion a good thing? And to entertain that thought is the wrong direction. I wish people would have just get up and say, no, like, no. I use the example because I think it's like 90% of crime is committed by single mother-parented children. So a non-principled monster mindset would say, let's eliminate all the children of single mothers. Crime will go down 90%. Now, if I would have said, do you want crime to go down 90%? Everybody's like, yeah, sure, everybody wants that. But what if I have to do evil to get that end? So I don't know what it takes for people to, to say, let's think more principally. Let's not do evil to have good come of it. But there's a group, it got strongly behind Ron Paul. I thought we were going there. But then they all got behind Donald Trump. They're not the same. But more and more in the podcasting world, this libertarian movement is growing, both from like a Christian homeschooler mindset and also from an atheist principled mindset. And I think that these central principles are the best way that we can live with one another. Do you know what you scored on the Myers-Briggs test? No. No. Well, I think I did. I don't know. Are you drawing a parallel between your Meyer Briggs profile and the way you interpret the world, which leads to your political views? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be able to think in a principled, conceptual way, like I said before, is very intangible. You know, you're thinking high level, strategic, moral, philosophical, for example. And there's a lot of people that just don't think on that level whatsoever. They're in the like, tangible here and today feelings moment kind of thing and vice versa the person who can think very philosophically conceptually principled may not be as focused on the here and now this minute by this minute kind of topics and concepts yeah maybe that's why one person is drawn to uh, certain ideas and, and the next is not don't know all right well Clearly, we've solved the riddle of the American future of liberty yeah, <laughs> and, and how to get it. So there we go. Thank you very much for uh, solving that problem for us. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. And if you want lots of other problems of the world solved, I'm one half of the Idea Tank podcast where we change the world one non-implemented idea at a time. <laughs> we share million dollar ideas for free. And you can check us out at Idea Tank Podcast, Twitter, all those things, and also ideatankpodcast.com. Yeah, thanks again. And you know who, who else you can find there? Dallas Post of this podcast. That is true. I have made two guest appearances. All right. Thank you very much, Eric. All right. Thanks for having me on. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. <laughs>